Good morning, beloved. So good to join with you this morning. The word that the Lord gave to me this morning, uh, just as we were singing one of the songs, reminding us of the love of Christ, I thought I would just share it with you quickly. It may be helpful. From Romans chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, we're being separated from lots of things today, but one assurance we have is we cannot be separated from the love of God which is in Christ. I, I found that really comforting to my soul this morning and I'm just thinking there might be somebody out there who needed that word of encouragement today as well. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for drawing us together from wherever we are. Thank you that we are assured that nothing can separate us from your love. There are no circumstances. There are no powers. There is nothing that can separate us from your love. And Father, so thank you for that. May we rest in your love today. May we be assured of your love today. And now I pray, Father, as we turn our attention to the exposition of your word to our hearts, to our lives today, I pray that you would help us to welcome it. May the power of God's spirit Illumine us to understand what you have for us, I pray. And uh, Lord, we thank you so much that you love us and you care for us and you have spoken to us and are speaking to us. And uh, we now are, are uh, as the prophet of old, saying to you, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And we are in Jesus' name. Amen. And Amen. Well, I have an odd question for you this morning as we begin, and it is this. What makes a fish a fish? Now, Pastor Steve would certainly be able to answer this question. In other words, what is the essence of a fish? For instance, is a whale a fish? Is a porpoise a fish? How many say no? I see those hands. Is a shark a fish? Well, interestingly, um, there are five essentials to a fish. A fish must be ectothermic, which is a fancy word for cold-blooded. A fish lives only in water, secondly. Third, a fish must have gills for breathing. Fourth, it must have swim bladders, which help to stabilize it. Pastor Nick could use some swim bladders, as I understand it, 
when he's around the ocean. And fifth, they have fins for mobility. And I'm guessing Pastor Steve would chirp in and say there is a sixth essential, and that is they are to be caught and eaten. In fact, uh, Jesus himself commanded us to, well, at least commanded his disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, come sit down and eat fish. So we are, we are in the command of the Lord to eat fish. So fish have essentials that makes a fish a fish. A, a whale is not a fish because a whale breathes air. It's warm-blooded. It's a mammal. A, a porpoise is not a fish. It's a mammal because it breathes air and also has, is warm-blooded. So there are specific details that are essential to make something the essence of what it actually is. This morning, as we continue to move along in our series on the essentials of Christianity, the essential of the church, ecclesiology, uh, we want to look at what is essential to the local church. In other words, what, what makes a church uniquely different from other places of worship or other religious gatherings? So today we're looking at the essence of the church in the third of our series, a biblical representation of the very being of the local church. Some of the questions that sort of pop up because there's a lot of phrases being thrown around these days. So for instance, are Christian places of worship always a church? Or is there a difference between a Christian religious gathering and a church? And when are those things different? What are the elements that together distinctively and intrinsically or essentially make a local church a church. That's what we're going to look at this morning in the time that we have and uh, from God's Word. And we want to look at that as opposed to just any place of worship, of anything, or just a religious gathering. How do we understand the essential that is the Calvary Baptist Church versus Christians from Calvary Baptist Church? Just simply gathering together. So there are four elements that I want to look at this morning. They're not going to actually be new to you, but you've at least been introduced to them. But we're going to look a little more detail today as we, as we search God's Word. And the first is, these, is this. The first element of what is uh, the element of, an, uh, of the essence of the church is that it's God's organized, purposeful assembly. Now, we've learned this over the last couple of weeks, but we want to make sure we drill down and understand where we get this and how we understand this to be so. That we know that from the Word of God, the church, a, a local church, the essence of a local church is a people, uh, an assembly called out to be usable by God, called out as His holy people, usable to God. And a local church, of course, when we drill down and understand what that really means, is organized and has structure. It knows who is in and who is out. But let's, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. We want to look a little bit more at that a little bit later. First of all, we notice that it's God's church. That has significance for us. It's, it's God's church. Therefore, it needs to be organized His way. When we understand the essence of the church, we, we need to understand that our first concern is to please God because it is His. 
doing things his way. God's church organized his way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when Paul was instructing the early church in Corinth, he was talking to them about uh, worship is to be orderly because, because um, God is not a God of disorder but of peace. In verse 40 of that same chapter, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Our first concern is to please God. Everything we do should consider this goal. Every ministry that we have should come under alignment to this goal, to please God and do things His way. But we also know that it's, it's an assembly. We, we've been learning this it, it's, it, over and over again. Kahal in Hebrew, ecclesia in Greek. Uh, it's a people bonded together. It's a, a, an, an assembled group of people. That's what the church is. Who gather with each other. Who are in each other's lives. Uh, the church is not a place of individual lone wolves. Uh, rather, when you, when you are part of the body of Christ, when you're part of the church, you surrender a certain amount of autonomy and independence and, and, and individualism and privacy. We discover this in, in also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, where, where Paul writes and says there, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. That's how uniquely assembled and knit together we truly are. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. There's no resentment in the body of Christ when someone is honored or, or celebrated because we are so tightly knit together that if, if one of us is celebrated or one of us is honored, we all join in in the honor and the celebration because it, it's, it's for all of us. This is the uniqueness of the church, the assembly, the essence of the church is how tightly knit together we are, how bonded together we are. Our hearts grieve, our hearts ache. Even this week, our hearts are grieving and aching for a part of our body that is, that is uh, suffering with loss of, of a loved one. And, and, and so we can't be fully uh, celebrative or happy because someone is hurting among us. There will be days for celebration and days for joy, but, but right now we're hurting that's how we are. In um, Hammett's book, he states this, the very word church and every image for the church is corporate, involving people being assembled together in face-to-face -face relationships. That's the essence of the church. That's, the, that's who we are. And right now we are being pressured to be like fish out of water by being separated from each other, by being shut-ins, isolated, individuals, privacy. But you know that it, we're not only God's organized assembly, structured, but we're purposeful as well. We're, to be, we're, we're for a purpose. God has called us for a purpose. Turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47 gives us the purpose of how the early church began and was established. There's a, uh, while you're turning there, there's a poster that has been circulating in, Hull, in, in England, actually, throughout England. And it, it comes from the uh, Hull University uh, teaching hospitals in Hull, England. And, and the poster says this, we really need to see less of each other 
friendship isn't a vaccine. That, that is completely opposite to the community idea that God had for assembling his church. We are being socially engineered away from the very vision that God has for us. Look with me and see for yourselves in God's word. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves, talking about the early believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And as a result, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You got five key things that are happening here in the early church in terms of the purpose of the church. You got teaching, fellowship, worship, service, evangelism. You see, it's all there. Teaching, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, that word koinonia, being gathered together, a richness that the world does not understand, a richness that our hearts are so longing for. Why are our hearts aching to be together here on Sunday morning? Because we were made for each other. We were made for this. We were made to be together. It's the essence of what it means to be a church. Gathered together, strengthening each, strengthening each other, encouraging each other, not alone. Making life worthwhile. Worship. Gathering together. Breaking of bread. The Lord's table. Praying with each other. Being filled with awe. Praising God. Celebrating together. Lifting up our voices together. All dress rehearsals of what it will be like in glory when we are there forever. These Sundays, these gatherings, whatever day we gather, it's a dress rehearsal for the, the, the fellowship and worship and enjoyment we will have in heaven. And service, the meeting of each other's needs, physical, material, social, financial, spiritual, all met holistically as we join together as the church. <laughs> the... the and then, of course, evangelism, adding people, getting saved by their exporting of the gospel and baptisms. My greatest joy in life through all of these years has been the weekly gathering of the body of Christ. I've lived for that week by week, the joy of just being together with God's people and enjoying our purpose why we've been called out of this world, why we've been saved in the first place, to join together in a great body, in a great company, and lift up our praises to the Lord and encourage each other, strengthen each other, and, and to, to help each other to keep on keep, keeping on. All of that is who we are. All of that is being jeopardized, even now. So What? These things are muted. At least three, three out of five of these things, our fellowship, our corporate worship, and dress rehearsals of the celebration in glory, 
Our meeting of needs face to face, touching each other, what it means to be Christian, all muted by government orders. So what? How organized and purposeful and assembled is Calvary Baptist Church? Well, we're called to be structured and we seek to endeavor to do that. We're called to be bonded together, which is in jeopardy at the moment by situational circumstances. We're called to fulfill our purpose in ministries in full, not to minimize them. Church is at risk. The health of church is at risk. We're not only exiled, but we are isolated, under house arrest, shut-ins. If, I'm a, if I were to answer or be asked the question, how healthy is Calvary Baptist Church right now? My answer is I don't really have a clue. The gatherings are very helpful to know how healthy we really are. There's a second in this essence of what church really is. Of the 114 times in the New Testament that the word ecclesia is used or references to church, 90 of them mean the local church. It is the true matter of concern of the New Testament writers. And of course, the local church, the meaning is an assembly or an assembling of people in a proximate geographic setting who listen who worship and minister together under local leadership. So we are a local, living, and growing assembly. The first was we were God's organized, purposeful assembly. We are, secondly, a local, living, and growing assembly. From the Word of God, we learn that Christians are to belong and not be detached from the local church. How do I understand that to be so? Well, in Acts 2, if your Bibles are still open there, in verse 41, those who accepted his message, and this was, of course, Peter's preaching, Peter's message, those who accepted his message were baptized, and listen, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There was a understanding or an accounting or a, 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 an agreed upon fact that those who came to know Christ were added, known to be added to the assembly. In uh, 1 Corinthians 5.2, it talks there about putting out of your fellowship those who are continuing to practice sin without repentance. So put out of, so in, in other words, these people were known to be in the fellowship and they are being sent out of the fellowship. And in the same text, in 1 Corinthians 5, we see this phrase written, to judge those outside the church, but we are not to judge those inside. And so th th there's this outsiders and insiders. Now, um, some have said, no, well, there's no mention of membership in the New Testament, and you would be right. There's no specific wording that says anything about membership, but let's understand one thing and make one thing abundantly clear in the New Testament ancient church. You were either in or out. With persecution rampant, 
the cost of coming to know Christ and following him with passion uh, made certain uh, that it drove people to decide you're either in or you're out. There was no luxury of being some sort of observer or some sort of neutral person or, or a conscientious um, abstainer from really being a part of the fellowship. No, no, there was none of that. There was none of what we see today in, in, in churches now, obviously, there were some who would come and observe because they were yet to come to know Christ. But anybody who was baptized, anybody who was a believer, was known to be in or they, if they were not a believer, they were out. So Christians are to belong and not be detached from the local church. And that means if you were a parachurch worker, you should be a member of a local church. That means if you were a missionary serving somewhere, you need to be a member of a local church. In fact, at Calvary, you can't be supported by Calvary Baptist Church unless you are a member of a Bible-believing church. Because that's what believers do. That's who Christians are. They identify themselves with a local body of believers, tightly knit together in membership. Under this rubric of local living and growing assembly, churches are to grow and do so through change. I know most of us bristle at change. We, we don't love change, but change is necessary. Change is absolutely necessary for anything to grow. Anything that you see, a child or a plant or an animal or whatever, uh, to grow it changes. That's what happens. And the church is a, a living, vital, growing assembly. So we're not to ask the question, should the church be changing? The church is always changing. But is, the question is, is the change legitimate? Is the change biblical? Is the change scriptural? Too often in our culture and in our day, the culture is shaping the change of the church rather than the church shaping the changes of the culture. So we're to give attention to scripture and not, accom not accommodation to culture. There are a lot of unhealthy settings calling themselves churches because they have allowed too much of the culture to shape the church. Now, culture is, is always, always going to be shaping the church in terms of some style and some changes that take place. Not everything from the culture is sinful or egregious or bad. We are people of our time and we change and culture does shape that change. But some of the things that are among us have been unnecessarily shaped by the culture. The consumerism, the, the corporate business models that seem to overshadow at times uh, the way church should function. Even congregational government itself was clearly influenced by Western culture. Not necessarily in a bad way. I also want you to notice, though, in, in uh, scriptures, in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, for instance, it talks there about spiritual growth. The emphasis in the New Testament in terms of growth is personal spiritual growth of individual believers. Less emphasis on pro programmatic evangelism or how-tos of evangelism and more drilling down deeply into the hearts of God's people. Because after all, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, God, it's God who makes things grow. We plant, we water, yes we do. But it's God who makes things grow. And that's why the, the New Testament writers spend so much time um, uh, emphasizing the transformation and change in the life and heart of the believer as we grow to be more and more in the likeness of Christ. Because as we grow to be more in the likeness of Christ, 
There's a natural passion among us to reflect the greatness of Christ and the message of Christ and witness to the testimony of Christ. And by virtue of that, the church grows numerically from spiritual growth. So it's the health of the church that first fuels the expansion of the church. Growth, spiritual, and then numerical comes from the church functioning obediently to Christ. That's how the New Testament writers present it. So, so what about this? How formally connected and alive and growing is Calvary Baptist Church as we do a, a certain self-analysis? Are all of our believers who identify with this church actively engaged members serving God in their places? That's how Calvary Baptist Church becomes essential church. How are we doing in terms of growing? Are we intentionally investing ourselves in growing, in faith-growing opportunities, in spirit-growing opportunities, in heart-expanding opportunities that the church might in turn grow numerically from our passion for Christ? Well, thirdly, a the third essence of church is it's a gospel assembly. It's a gospel assembly. We're not a good works assembly. We're not a, a social justice assembly. We're not a political action association. Although all of us who come to faith in Christ know that out of the richness of what Christ does in our hearts leads us to good works and leads us to social justice and righteousness and action and leads us to seek to influence and impact and persuade our, our society to live a better way but we are first and foremost, and the essence of church is a gospel assembly that God would graciously offer to us salvation, offer to the world salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hammett in his book writes this, the gospel is prior to the church and the church exists because of it. If the church ever loses the gospel, it ceases to be a church. The gospel is essential to its being. That's why Paul could write to the Romans in Romans 1.16, one of my favorite verses and one of my favorite sections of the scriptures. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. I have to admit that what Paul is writing here is in, in uh, an interesting take, I think, on some of the criticism that's been thrown at the church during this, this pandemic time. People afraid that the church might become a super spreader of the virus, but I, I want to point out to you that no places of worship, there has been zero transmission of this virus in all of the records of Durham Health. Uh, for all of this pandemic, zero transmissions from places of worship. But you know, as I think I, I thought about this, churches being super spreaders of a virus, you know, you know what we need to be super spreaders of? We need to be gospel super spreaders. That, that's what the essence of the church is. That's, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
the message of salvation that to those who call in the name of the Lord, to those who repent of their sins, to those who turn from themselves and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. I'm not ashamed of that. That's the best message, that's the best news that any human being could ever have, that they could be made right with God. Everybody's scrambling around wondering how to organize their lives and how to save themselves and how to protect themselves. The best and greatest news is you can have salvation through Jesus Christ so that you are saved for all of eternity and nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, not life or death. This is the great message. We're, we're gospel super spreaders. I'm glad that super spreader thing phrase has come up because I'm going to hang on that now for a long time. We are gospel super spreaders. And we protect the gospel. We protect the essence of the gospel. We protect the truth of the gospel. We make certain that we don't spread fake news, but rather gospel news. But even if we or an angel from heaven, Galatians 1, 8 to 9, should preach another gospel or a, go a gospel other than the one we preach to you, in other words, the apostles' gospel, let them be under God's curse. Do you hear this? To preach a message that in any way differs from the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be cursed. As we have already said, so now I say again, as if you didn't hear it the first time, Paul says, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be damned. So protecting our teaching as we understand it from the scriptures is paramount to the essence of church, of being a real church. We're selective and we're discerning here at Calvary about who teaches. That's a priority for us. Later in the series, we're going to talk about spotting dangers in the church. Way later in the series. So look, look for that. Hammond again writes, if a church errs on the gospel, they have become not just imperfect, but invalid and are no longer a church. It's exactly what Satan wants. Wants us to no longer be a church. Beloved, you are either a minister of the gospel or you are a project of the gospel. There's only two people, in, two kinds of people in this world. Ministers of the gospel or projects of the gospel. So, how are we doing at Calvary? How gospel are we? Is our teaching consistently scripturally sourced? Strengthened in the gospel. Prior, do we prioritize the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ alone? And know this, that our gospel, the gospel that's been handed down to us from the apostles, the good news of Jesus Christ is about conversion. It's about people necessarily converting from who they were to who they need to be and can be in Jesus Christ. And I sent out something to you this week about Bill C6. Bill C6 is the first insidious intrusion into preventing the conversion of people in this country to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's going to take a whole segment of people who are hurt, hurting and broken and, and uh, confused 
uncertain and isolate them from the gospel, from the good news of Jesus Christ, making it unlawful and criminal behavior for the church to be a gospel super spreader to all of the people in our country. Who would have thought in just these few short years the preamble in this, this despicable, evil bill conjured up from the pit of hell is actually, in the preamble, it actually alludes to our faith as being a myth. Finally, the essence of church is divine power. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church again in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, states this, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We are, the essence of church, fourthly, is a spirit-empowered assembly. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is resident in the assembly of Jesus Christ. All power, all authority was given to Jesus Christ and he has commissioned us with the promise of all of that power and all of that authority being granted to us as the church, as his church. There's a, an important text in John 7, 37 to 39 where Jesus promised this would happen. In John 7, 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. But when Jesus was glorified, the Spirit of God was offered to the church. The Spirit and church are intrinsically connected the church is the most powerful institution in all of the world. We should not be ashamed. We should not be afraid. We should not be cowards. We should not be insecure. We should not in any way uh, shrink back from who we are. Listen, we are a spirit-empowered assembly. The church, in, in, interestingly, is never mentioned. The ecclesia is never mentioned in the book of Acts prior to Pentecost. But after Pentecost, which was the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's mentioned 20 times. So the, the beginning of the church was Pentecost. That's why Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended, listen, don't do anything, don't go anywhere until I send you the Holy Spirit. Don't mess things up, wait. But then he did. And the Holy Spirit came upon the early church in power, evident power. 
And that same spirit is resident with the Calvary Baptist Church assembly. We are the visible representation of Jesus Christ in our community, in our world, through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit resident with us. All his power, all Christ's power is available to us to live out who we are. Church is the power of God demonstrated. Of course we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do what God has promised. But sometimes I wonder if we really trust in the Holy Spirit to be able to do, to actually do what God promises. We don't have a truth problem generally. We have a trust problem gigantically. I want to give a shout out to my brothers and sisters in Christ from the Pentecostal background denomination of the church. That part of the family. Obviously, you know that we have some theological differences, but there's something I certainly admire about Pentecostalism. The Pentecostal denomination, the family, part of our family has been in existence about 120 years. And at this point in our world, 500 million people call themselves Pentecostal in our world, followers of Christ. 500 million. So this will set you back just a little bit if you're a big B Baptist. We've been around for about 400 years. Thousands of missionaries. There's only about 50 million people in the world calling themselves Baptist. One-tenth. And what seems to be the uncommon denominator between us and Pentecostalism seems to be their strong emphasis in trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit and his work among them. The third person of the Trinity, very God. We should not downplay this, not downplay him, the Holy Spirit of God. You know what bothers me right now? among believers in particular is that fear has become the responsible way to live. Fear has become the responsible way to live. Of course you should be afraid. At least that's what the uh, common parlance on the street is these days. There is a responsible way to live, beloved. But if you are part of the church of Jesus Christ and have all of the resident power of the Godhead operationally, whom should we fear? Of what should we be afraid? You should not be living in fear. There isn't one place in the scriptures that tells God's people, be afraid. Be very afraid. It, the whole of the Bible is the opposite of that. This is the great benefit and joy of being in the family of God. Being a people of God is we don't have to fear. That's a, the it's tyranny. The, the control by fear is the power formula of tyrants. 
And, and governments right now are enjoying that formula. The church, the formula, the power formula of the church is the spirit of the Lord Almighty. The champions of the faith in, in bygone years didn't huddle back in fear. Carrie goes to India and says, listen, expect great things from God. Attempt great things from God. Guy Richards, the professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, says this, we ought to be dreaming bigger dreams and praying bigger prayers and taking bigger risks. We serve a big God. We're playing it too safe. What do the scriptures say in 1 Peter 3, 14, 17? Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Isaiah 41, 10. I know the life verses so many of you tuned in here this morning. Do not fear for I am with you, God says. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and I will up, uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's a truism that weaves it, its way through the Old and the New Testament. Zechariah 4, 6, nothing's changed. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Almighty. So let's wrap it up. The essence of the essential church then is a God-organized, purposeful, local, living, growing, gospel-centered, and spirit-empowered assembly. God is essential. And he has made the church essential because we represent his, essential, his essentiality on earth. We have been made to be eternal. Everything else is his footstool for his glory and for our convenience. We are essential because God has made us essential. So how about you? What needs to be shorn up in your life? Finding your place chosen for you by God? Being tightly connected to the church family? Intentionally connected? Actively engaged as a member of your local church? Identifying with the church as a believer? Growing spiritually and growing the church numerically? Prioritizing talking up the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Prioritizing prayer. Prioritizing obedience to the scriptures. That's what makes essential Christians, the essence of Christianity, making up the essence of church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this journey today again, Lord, into deep centers of your word to understand who we are and the essence of the church. We love you, God. We thank you for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and it is that Holy Spirit that will convict us of the truth that's been delivered here today. And I pray, oh God, that you might work in the hearts and lives of those, of all of us and all the areas that we need to shore up to come into alignment with the essence of being church, what it means to be church, I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.